over a decade of uninterrupted growth and low interest rates. So people have short memories, they forget. These companies are realizing you really can't cut your way to prosperity. In the first 100 days, do you really see, do they really walk the walk and, and talk the talk? High quality feedback is a lever for change and growth. Some of the leaders in place today, this is the first time they're going through something that is of a significant challenge that's not growth related. Welcome back to Disruption Matters, a podcast produced by Private Equity International in partnership with series sponsor, Alex Partners. In this series, we delve into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. This season, we're exploring how GPs and operating partners can best prepare for massive disruption at each point in the deal cycle. Today, on the first episode of our second season, we're looking at sourcing transactions in an era where macroeconomic factors can undermine the most conservative assumptions in that investment case. I'm Chase Collum, and as always, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Kotecki. How have you been? Great question. Well? I'm not jinxing anything by saying I'm good. At this point, I know better, and I'm simply grateful the aliens the government has apparently known about for decades appear to be friendly, so far. (laughs) Well, we're all grateful for that. But if you're a GP right now, you can't just be thankful. You've got to source deals, create value within the portfolio, and find a way to exit, even if the IPO market is quiet as a graveyard right now. And that's what this season is all about. Graveyards? That doesn't sound right. It's not. This season, we're exploring how GPs can navigate the whole deal cycle despite all those disruptive forces that jeopardize their best laid plans. We'll be talking with all kinds of consultants, dealmakers, operating partners, and industry professionals to discern the best way to tackle a market that leaves so little room for error. And that can be so unpredictable. It might be better to pick the next investment by flipping a coin or drawing a company's name out of a hat. I'm thinking that's precisely what GPs are not doing right now, but you're right about one thing. I think sourcing deals carries so much weight at the moment. Every investment case, even in the best of times, involves a little bit of faith, and that can be in short supply given the last few years. But reality is never pure doom and gloom, and there's a risk that GPs might be passing up on rich opportunities that one of their peers might scoop up instead. Then it's a competitor scoring one of those wins that shows up all over the next fund's PPM. LPs are counting on their managers to have enough expertise to move when everyone else is afraid to even exhale. That's what warrants the standard 2 and 20 compensation. And most GPs are relying heavily on their industry expertise and experience to understand what this market means to them. Here's Crosby Cook, a partner with EQT Partners. Different sectors respond very differently. And within private equity investing, it's really important to understand on what's going on in your sector. So just as an example, I spend a lot of time in transportation logistics. Within the transportation logistics market in North America, we're already in a full-on recession. We've had double-digit declines in volume and pricing, and it's across all modalities there's a recession going on. We've had two bankruptcies announced in the last week. So for us, it's really about being deep in a specific sector and understanding what's going on there and not worrying so much about the headline overall. And here's Mark Furman, a principal for real estate at Aero Global, highlighting how his sector interacts with broader trends. 
historically, real estate has always been like two lags away from changes in the interest rate environment, right? So you have your interest rates move, then that flows through to the real economy, corporate earnings, consumer behavior. And then you have a further lag when it comes to office buildings, retail, and anything that's leased because there's inherently a buffer between what corporates want and how quickly they can change their use of real estate. And then, of course, there's uncertainty you know, in terms of the more conventional real estate variables. There's uncertainty about construction costs, financing costs, yields. And you have essentially a situation where only... I saw a real estate meme about this the other day, right, which is essentially a trash and uh, trophies, right? So the only things that are trading are either very, very high quality assets where there's absolutely no doubt that they will retain value or very, very difficult assets that are already in such financial distress that they need to be sold. It's a big middle where, you know, there's just not much happening. Investors aren't trading. But here's Joanne Taylor, a partner and managing director with Alex Partners with one force that's working its way through all sectors right now. One other aspect that we think folks should be thinking about is financial debt, right? So many folks are going to be having maturities, whether it's 2024 going into 25. And I think many businesses are going to be in shock when they go and try to either refinance or really go to the market to obtain some additional cash. They need a strategy now and today. And again, just that big picture about the disruption availability of cash and needing to make sure that they have some liquidity. Those are really things that are core and at the heart of doing business today. Hey, Rob, do me a favor. Wake me up when cash isn't king. When sourcing the deal, due diligence rules. But this raises the question, how deep can you dig and for how long? Here's Furman again with the silver lining out there right now. So when you think about a typical real estate transaction in 2019, you would have you know, two rounds of bidding. You would probably have a competitive due diligence in the second round, and you would have a very compressed timeline, and the seller would generally be able to make you take a view on planning risk, construction risk, financing risk. And you would be kind of under pressure to skip a lot of due diligence that you would really ordinarily have liked to do, whereas now... If in this environment you're willing to commit capital to you know, an opportunistic real estate project, you tend to have a lot more time, you tend to have a lot more bargaining power in negotiations to make sure that due diligence findings actually you know, make it into the transaction structure and pricing. And so that's, in a way, the silver lining of the situation. At least the sellers understand the situation, but that's still a major burden on the buyer who has to take advantage of the extra room to dig even deeper than they usually would. But what are some key themes GPs should pay close attention to during due diligence? Here's Crosby again. Well, firstly, we model a pandemic in every base case from now on. But again, if you're buying an entire company, you have to have conviction around the company. There are some things you can do on the margin around putting structure into a deal if there's truly something that you can't underwrite and there's a gap between the seller's expectation and what you're willing to pay. You know, leverage is an important one. As a firm, we generally don't take the last dollar of leverage and we try to maintain operational flexibility by having a moderate level of leverage on our businesses so that we can reinvest the cash flows into the growth of the business. And so we consider ourselves to be a thematic origination shop, which means we're looking for long-term secular trends within our sectors where we're very deep. And then once we've identified those trends, then we're going and looking for companies with whom to build relationships and get more in the weeds with. 
so that by the time an opportunity becomes actionable for acquisition, we have a high degree of conviction around the long-term trends impacting that company, the specifics of the company, and with our operating advisors, a value creation plan on what we're going to do with that company. And that's actually the way that we work with these people from very early stage and the conviction that that gives us allows us to invest in different overall macro environments. Everyone we spoke to stressed that they were relying on their expertise and experience to make as informed an opinion as possible. Here's Furman. We rely heavily on some 18 operating loan servicing asset management platforms, which we own in five countries with more than 2,000 people working there, which are the primary you know, source of our deal flow. You know, any given asset class and any location where I invest, I have trusted senior people I've worked with for a long time that have been part of the Arrow family for a long time that I can look to for judgment and for leadership. Then asset quality is another part of it, right? And picking assets where, you know, we don't just have like marginal optimism, they'll probably be okay, but we actually have real conviction that they're strong fundamentals. You know, there's a strong case why there should still be demand in three, four, five years time and there you know, are real supply constraints. And to gauge any of that requires real time in a given sector and geography. Industry focus has become almost cliche by now, but that doesn't mean it's any less integral. Here's John Stetcher, the chief technology officer of Blackstone. Beyond traditional CTO duties, Stetcher also sources tech opportunities for the firm. Because of the scale we have here, we have, you know, about a thousand engineers, full-time consultants as well. And what that gives us is, you know, a really deep view from like a hands-on practitioner perspective of what's good in the technology space, what's good in the cybersecurity space, what's good kind of across the spectrum there. So that helps a lot with building an initial thesis. A lot of the engineers as well have deep relationships with their partners at our portfolio companies. And so when you think of this kind of interwoven mesh of engineers across the full estate across all of our scale, we have the ability to really build and work with our deal partners on like, you know, what are the interesting investment theses we should be following? So if you think of like enterprise tech, cybersecurity, what are people looking for? Where is their white space that we can invest in and then help them find companies out there? Same thing with like, you know, what does great look like inside of an investment we're going to make? So because we have a lot of various different viewpoints, we know what good looks like. We know what great looks like. We know what not so great looks like. And then in the early stage investing area as well, which is an area that I run for the firm, which is on balance sheet, where we do series A and B investments, seed series A and series B investments. We spend a good deal of time, you know, with those relationships, once again, knowing who are good founders in the industry, looking for people that have differentiated thought patterns and want to go off and solve those kind of white space areas. Taylor argues that experience can also address sky high valuations, another feature of the current moment. I would tell you there's a facet that's come up very frequently. Is there any input that we can provide or have a perspective on that would help identify something to consider in the valuation? So is it asset depreciation at the end of the cycle whereby a large capital investment is going to need to be made? What else could be considered in order to be able to help with the valuation, given that the valuations are so high? And are there different ways that we could look a little bit differently or a different lens that would help not do things unnaturally related to synergies or optimization, but 
really bringing forward more of a view around optimization of the organization, especially if it's a carve out or an acquisition, back into the buyer's business themselves. You know, all of this sounds great, but the thing that strikes me is the sheer amount of time fostering relationships, scouring the sector, digging into every facet of that enterprise. And yes, the seller might be more patient with additional diligence, but it's still a lot of work. It's an enormous investment of time and talent. How do you make the most of it? Here's Stetcher again. A lot of what we've focused on here is really like, upfront, how can we make the investment professionals more effective in handling more scale in terms of a larger volume of deals? A lot of the focus has been on being able to quickly get access to data rooms, be able to rip through data rooms, building technology that can extract the right information, build the models, build a lot of the analysis. And so that's some of the biggest stuff that we've been focused on here over the past year, even more so with like some of the newer AI bits and pieces out there that we've been pulling together. And then you take that information you can extract out of a deal room and on a specific deal, we weave it together with a lot of the private and protected data that we have inside of Blackstone just given the scale and we can do a lot of correlation and calibration of the current deal. Where do we have things that we need to double click on and poke in more from either a modeling perspective, a financials perspective, a risk perspective, or a tech perspective? We do a lot of work there. And then the last bit is you put that together with public data and you look for your comps and how do you actually want to compare this deal against stuff that's in the public arena. And then once you get into like, you know, secondary diligence or like, you know, where you actually want to punch a little bit deeper outside of saying yes or no, this deal makes sense. There's a plethora of tools out there now. You can go off and leverage a platform to look at like how high caliber is a CEO? How does she actually rate against her peers, right? There's a number of things down that path that you can go off and just leverage off the shelf that before you had to know people or you had to pay consultants on. So they're translating all that experience into a formal data set to be uploaded into a system that allows their deal teams to move faster and smarter with each new deal in a space. Here's Taylor endorsing precisely this kind of firm-wide IQ tech initiative. It's unlocking for us the ability to do like a double click or triple click down on some of the analysis whereby we may have had to, you know, due to time, this is what we can get to. So we may be able to go out to our expert network and do more, whether it's subjective or more objective evaluation of the findings. It's enabling us to do that, to get additional paths to go and evaluate that maybe we hadn't thought of before. So I'm excited. I'm hoping it doesn't mean that I still have so many late nights. But at the end of the day, I do hope it alleviates some of the activity and enables us to get to better outcomes. It's always a win when cutting edge tech doesn't translate into even longer hours. But we'd be remiss to avoid addressing the core tech aspects of due diligence. In a way, every company is now a tech company. And that means taking a look at systems, software, and security. Here's Stetcher. Some of the stuff that like we do specifically from a technology perspective, there's two main areas that we really spend a lot of time looking at from a diligence side. One is like cyber risk. So one of the biggest things out there, if you look at like risk to companies is, you know, any type of a hack, major data leakage, major outage caused by a cyber breach. 
can be massively detrimental to the valuation of an asset or the company that you've invested in. So we spend a lot of time up front on cyber practices, how protected are people, what's the theory behind, you know, how they think about protecting their business and their customers and clients in the forward. And then also like you layer on the next bit there from a tech diligence perspective, which is looking at how tech enabled or how tech forward is the actual company. If you consider most companies are now selling stuff online or having to run fairly efficiently from a technology perspective to reduce cost, you can glean how well is a company going to operate in the forward based on like the technology stack, the technology employees and like the engineers that they have. And so we spend a good deal of time looking at where are they at in their migration to the cloud, how legacy or how much tech debt have they taken on inside of their actual tech stack. And then we also spend a good deal of time really working with the leadership and talking about, you know, how do you see technology moving your business forward? And how do they think about scaling a business? Because if you're buying an asset, you obviously want it to appreciate. Appreciating is selling more things. So you have to figure out how do they think about leveraging and going into new markets. Taylor says working with leadership and talent evaluation come up frequently with regards to conducting due diligence today. So we're talking with our clients and our private equity partners about making sure that the right people are in the right seats. And, you know, the last economic downturn was 15 years ago. That's a long time in a career to have had growth, right? And at this point, it's a very different way of managing and operating and needing to really be thoughtful about the future and Some of the leaders in place today, this is the first time they're going through something that is of a significant challenge that's not growth related. And we need to be very open about it and look at it in terms of where does somebody need shoring up or where do we actually need to make a rapid shift in the talent that might be in place, whether it's the CFO, whether it's a CEO or other key positions to make sure that the business can chart and navigate the choppy waters that are here today and that for the most part, we're expecting to stick around for a while. Even if people have been through, you know, the great financial crisis, it might have been early in their career and we've had over a decade of uninterrupted growth and low interest rates. So, you know, people have short memories. They forget what happened. One of the ways that we try to manage around this is We work with what we call industrial advisors who are senior operating executives that have multi-decade careers specific to the sectors that we're in, have lived through all the different cycles and can, you know, bring their expertise to help the EQT investing team think about how trends may evolve over a much longer time horizon. So I like to say, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will, when we think about what's going on in our companies, even if we haven't directly experienced 30 years of cycles in the transportation logistics industry, as an example. That's Crosby at EQT Partners, stressing just how much experience matters. But it's not the only element of talent evaluation. Veterans are not always available or the right fit, Stetcher explains. The earlier you move in the investment stage, the more the founder and the human element of the leadership team matters. I would say like three of the core things we look for from the early stage investing bit is like quality of founder, number one. What is her mindset about the way she thinks about solving problems? How creative is she on her feet with hard questions about her business and challenges that it could face? How does she think about the technology aspect of it? and how it enables the business to scale. There's also just a it factor, 
when you're talking to somebody, if you're in a room with somebody and you're like, yes, they have it, right? And they can hit on all those other bits, you know that they're going to be somebody that like from a founder perspective, other people, employees or other investors are more than likely going to want to follow. This is not to say charisma alone seals it for Stetcher or anyone else these days. There are enough TV shows to warn everyone of the swift, brutal falls of charismatic founders. Stetcher also stressed that their vision for the company must be based on reality. But how well can a GP get to know a team in due diligence? Sure, there's the core negotiating team and perhaps long meetings with a CEO or CFO, but is that really enough? Taylor argues for a deeper dive into the human capital question. So often what we will do is a evaluation and it's true outside in. Typically, you know, we aren't having full access at this point into management, but in that due diligence, actually doing some market interviews and I'm not going to say investigation, but in essence, taking what we can from the public domain and establishing a profile to see what is the individual done in the past? What about them and what have they demonstrated or shown us in terms of character and outcomes that it looks like could be applied in whatever the new situation is? I think that this is an underrepresented and under-evaluated area of a diligence. I think some of this really comes back to the PE firms, the GPs and others asking for the ability to do some interviews and to try to put more of that in the upfront where possible. But even though it may not be able to get to the level you want during the diligence, I think moving on that immediately after close or in sign to close is something that needs to be done. And that can be done in various ways. We know the PE firms will go in and they'll do their own interviews. I also think this is where having an advisor come in and have, in essence, an assessment of the entire senior leadership team is something that we would recommend in order to know are there blind spots? You know, is the CEO working with people that they've worked with for 20 years just at different locations? And what's the likelihood of that CEO misjudging, misevaluating, doing to the closeness of that relationship? This human element is going to be one of the key themes at every point in the deal cycle. Turns out that while human capital might be hard to evaluate and predict, the right people are the key to GPs keeping their firm and portfolio companies resilient in this disruption era. Which we'll be exploring more over the next four episodes this season. Coming up next time, we'll look at the first 100 days of an investment when all those grand ambitions in the investment thesis are put to the test. In the meantime, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Spotlight wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get each new episode as it drops. I'm Chase Collum. And I'm Rob Kotecki. See you next time.